Hi, this is Dr. Lat Mansour, Research Lead of Health via Modern Nutrition here on HVMM Podcast. This episode, I interviewed Chris Irvin, who is a nutrition researcher, writer, and educator of low-carb dieting for metabolic health. He's also the chief marketing officer of a company called BioCoach. In this episode, we talked about difference between exogenous ketones and ketogenic diet with regards to performance and exercise. We also talk about the importance of ketones in metabolic health and solving neurodegenerative diseases. So if you are interested, stay tuned and enjoy this episode. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much for coming on to HVMN Podcast. I know today is a, a quite early recording for both of us, but thank you very much. We made it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, lad. I think, uh, you know, taking a little shot of uh, ketones before this episode is going to help me wipe that sleep from my eyes so we can have a good episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so did I. So I, I did take it about 15 minutes before. So I think it's about... About time kicking in now. Should be kicking in. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So this episode of HVMM Podcast, um, I would love to pick your brain around um, your field of study, your current um, passion, your current interest. And let's start with telling our listeners and our audience who you are, what your you know passion is, and what's your background. Yeah, so uh, my name is Chris Irvin, and uh, you know most people know me on social media as the ketologist. Um, you know, still sticking with that despite the fact that everybody thinks keto's dead and and is no good. Um, I'm still still riding that out and, and posting a lot of uh, keto content. Um, my background is so you know I went to my my undergrad. I studied uh, primarily exercise science. I was a um, I was a two sport athlete in college. Played basketball and baseball. So. You know, was really really into studying um, human performance and you know just really for just like personal use like what can I do to kind of optimize my human performance uh, and, and kind of along that journey I got like a little bit of an introduction to nutrition um, but didn't really uh, you know I had had some early interest in it in undergrad but it didn't really uh, strike me too like it didn't really kind of set me off on a tangent to, to dive into nutrition uh, you know, I looked at it a little bit from like a performance aspect, like what can I do before, you know, basketball games to improve my um, performance. But besides that, you know, didn't really look at nutrition from like the, the health uh, lens. And then uh, after I graduated, I was uh, kind of on my career path was to get into strength and conditioning. I was training high school and collegiate athletes, um, was, was looking to get into um, strength and conditioning at the professional level, wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach in the NBA. I kind of had that as like my, my peak thing. Um, you know, that would have been top, top of the line goal for me to hit. And, um, and during that journey, I kind of got introduced into bodybuilding. Actually, I had a coworker who was doing bodybuilding, um, and, you know, kind of thought that was interesting, got into it a little bit. And because of that, um, got a little bit heavier into nutrition as anybody knows that does any sort of like physique or, or bodybuilding type stuff. Like nutrition is huge. You, you can't get down to, you know, four or 5% body fat just by uh, doing crunches in the gym. You, you really have to, um, dial in your nutrition. So, uh, that that got me really interested in nutrition. I realized how little I knew about it, and um, and had a desire to go back to school. So I, I went back after a year off. Went back to school to a master's program down here in Tampa, University of Tampa, uh, for it was an exercise science and nutrition program, and was introduced to the keto diet. Um, actually, my first class, first day of my first class, we uh, was in a sports nutrition class, and we talked about the ketogenic diet for endurance performance. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I'd heard a little bit about the diet, but didn't really know much about it. Um, started looking at a lot of the evidence that was out there and got super interested in it. Um, even though I wasn't really, you know, an endurance 
athlete and didn't really have a lot of interest in that area. I was just, it was interesting to see this like, oh, um, you know, endurance sports, I've always been told is you need a lot of carbohydrates. It's kind of like a must. You have to, you know, replenish that glycogen. And then we start looking at these studies that were coming out at the time from, you know, Dr. Volick and, uh, you know, Tim Noakes was putting out a lot of good stuff in that area. And it's like, holy cow, like I've, I've been wrong about this. Um, so I, I went home that day and, and started the keto diet. Actually, that first first day after class, I went to uh, the grocery store, um, bought, you know, the traditional uh, what used to be keto, you know, all the bacon, cream cheese, ranch dressing, um, you know, all the all of that stuff and um, jumped into it. And even though I was making a lot of mistakes with the diet, like really started noticing that I was feeling incredible from it. And um, and that, you know, just kind of made me start to wonder a little bit like, wow, maybe there's something to this. Like I'm starting to feel, you know, at the time I had this crazy schedule where I was working in the, the lab at our university from like, uh, well, I would go and I would personal train because that was, that was how I made money in college. I would go personal train from like 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. And then I would go into the lab mm -hmm. from like 8.30 a.m. to like 5 p.m. And then I would come back and train from like 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, and that was like six days a week I was doing that. And before I was doing that for a while before I was on keto and my energy was just zapped. I was like hungry all the time and like, you know, moody and just like, you know, waking up tired. And, you know, after a couple weeks on keto, I was like, damn, I feel like really good. Like this is this is crazy. So, you know, I naturally started looking a little bit more into it and, and was just like blown away by how much research was actually out. You know, and this is back in like 2015 where um, there's a lot more now. But even then it was like, wow, there's like a decent amount of studies out here. And, and um, you know, at the time it was still mostly around like performance. The lab I was working in was an exercise science lab. So, uh, we were doing research on keto, uh, in like basketball players. And, uh, I think we had some like soccer players and lacrosse and baseball and stuff like that. And was finding a lot of cool stuff in that area. Cause there wasn't a lot of research on that, like keto for sports performance outside of endurance. There wasn't a lot of research. So, you know, I naturally, um, you know, kind of just really got into that part, that like specific niche of the ketogenic uh, research. And then, uh, you know, I think midway through my graduate studies, I came across the book Tripping Over the Truth by uh, Travis Christofferson, uh, who is, um, you know, a really great friend of mine now um, and one of my favorite authors. And I read I read the book. It was one of those things like picked it up, couldn't put it down, like read it in like two days. Uh, and, and kind of saw there was like an introduction into the therapeutic side of keto. And I was like, oh, interesting. I didn't even know about that. I didn't know that there could be some therapeutic utilization to this diet. I kind of was just looking at it as like a, you know, weight loss and, and you know, some maybe some sports performance applications. And um, so I kind of started diving into that a little bit. And it was it was amazing. I was, I was blown away that um, so I was, you know, stumbled across like Dr. Angela Poff's research. She was looking at like exogenous ketones and the ketogenic diet. Uh, in different models of cancer and so I, I, re I remember I read her full dissertation in the lab mm -hmm. one day and then found out like the next day that she was a guest professor I didn't even realize that she was at USF in like you know right, right. down the street from us and found out she was actually a guest professor that semester in our um, in our program and I had chosen it was a special topics class so I had actually chosen already uh, a biomechanics class because I was still a little bit more into that side and I didn't choose her metabolism class and I was so mad at myself I was like too late to switch I was like oh my god this this girl has this like amazing research that I'm reading is like literally in the building teaching and I'm not in her class um, so I like reached out and was like hey, I want to like get in the lab like over there can I intern like can I help in any way uh, and she was like really really nice and, and took me in um, and I went over there and was without a doubt the dumbest person in that building um, and I don't say that to like just be like mean to myself like those people are 
over there were so incredibly smart and I got to learn so much from them about the therapeutic application of keto. And this was really during a time when like it was less talked about, like not many people were talking about keto for diabetes or keto for neurodegenerative diseases or maybe even like the cardiovascular implications of it. And, um, you know, getting to be around all those incredibly smart people, I got to have like a little bit of an intro into that and see, um, you know, that there was a lot more to this diet than just the weight loss and sports performance side. Uh, and during that time, this is kind of where my passion I think comes from is I, I started to get really upset that I was like, you know, I see these researchers who are just working their asses off every single day in this lab. Um, and their research is being tucked away in these journals that people either don't have access to, or, uh, if they do have access to it, it's like hard for them to understand. Um, yeah. just because reading research, as you know, um, is not an easy thing. It, it takes some training to do it. Um, so I started realizing that, you know, one, I was nowhere near smart enough to be a PhD or to be a, um, you know, somebody that was going to work in the lab setting. I kind of saw it's like, it's kind of like, um, you know, as like an athlete, when you realize one day it's like, oh, there's the elite and then there's me, you know? And, and, and that was kind of my realization that, you know, I wasn't quite as elite as them, but what I, what I found is that, you know, maybe where I could make my impact would be through taking that information. I was good at reading research. That was kind of the thing that I, and I had a passion for it. So I was like, maybe what I can do is, is be the person that can take this information and distill it down in a way that it could be applicable. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of where the ketologist brand came from as I, you know, started, you know, making infographics, breaking down research. And at the time in, in 2015, um, 2016, there wasn't a lot of people doing that. Like, um, I think maybe like rule.me was out at the time. Uh, I don't even know if Diet Doctor was out yet. Like maybe it was, but it was like still in its infancy. Uh, actually, it probably was available, but it wasn't maybe as like mainstream. So, you know, I was I, I got some pretty good early growth just from being like one of the only people that was doing that. Um, and then, you know, once I started doing that, like a lot of that was just driven on wanting to kind of like highlight and make the information that these researchers were working so hard on, just making it available to people so that it could impact more people. And then once I, so that was kind of the early passion, but then once I started seeing the impact that was having on people, um, and so you start hearing these stories of people losing all this weight and getting off their diabetes medications and re re you know, reversing cardiovascular disease risk and stuff. And then from there it just spirals out of control. And it's just like, this is amazing. Like I, I want to, you know, do whatever I can to kind of help, um, you know, progress this field forward and, and raise awareness around this diet. I think that can be really helpful. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of led down a couple different career paths that we can, you know, get into later in this episode. But, um, a lot of that's, that's really where the passion stemmed from is just realizing that like, you know, what I had learned about nutrition was wrong as many of us uh, find out. I think once we really dive into it is that, you know, we've been told the wrong thing and the wrong thing, you know, not only is it just, yeah, um, you know, misinformation that we have, but it's like harmful to people because, um, you know, there's a lot of lifestyle solutions, dietary solutions that are available for people who are dealing with chronic disease. Um, right. and they don't know about it and they like, they don't really have access to it and they're, you know, sick when they don't necessarily have to be. So I think a lot of my passion stemmed from just like not thinking that that was okay. And, and, you know, realizing that like, this is a broken industry and we have to do something about it. Um, so, and that's, that's how we got to where we are today. Thank you very much for, <laughs> for the comprehensive answer. Um, yeah. I, I, I really love your backstory. Uh, but by the way, first of all, you are a very smart individual and, and <laughs> I've got a PhD and never say that you're not smart enough to do a PhD. Like if anything I learned from doing a PhD from the University of Oxford is that, because honestly, I did think that before I started, like yeah. even after I got accepted, I didn't think I was smart enough to do a PhD and going through it and doing all these experiments in the lab, 
um, I think having some form of common sense, some form of ro- logical, rational sort of thinking, critical thinking is important yeah. to do a PhD. But, but most importantly, what the, the whole PhD training th- uh, really taught me was persistence and perseverance. Yeah. Because you are doing something that is so narrowed down, so niched and so novel that no one else, you're not supposed to do something that someone else is doing, right? You're supposed right. to do something completely new as a PhD. So you don't know what the outcome is. And that's what science is. And that's what's fun about this. But yeah. a- at the same time, it also doesn't just turn around overnight. You like people don't understand, like, let these scientists figure out something, you know, A, B, C, cause X, Y, Z. At the end of the day, you still need to go into the lab, spend time, like refine the experiments, um, problem solve, and really figure out, is your experiment working, first of all? Is it answering your research question, second? And then third, can you then take this to the next level, to the next step? So like the perseverance, the persistence, it's most important um, for me to complete my PhD. And I can yeah. totally see you doing it. Like knowing you for a while now, Chris, um, no doubt. I have no doubt you can complete a PhD, but maybe do it in like, like in the UK where it like lasts three years. Like you, right, cause you right. can get it in three years. And instead of in, in the US where you are put through master's classes, you know, within the first two years and then you, you go into the lab. So, yeah, so well, that's, I think, I that's, think- yeah, yeah, I think it's it's interesting though the part so you know I think part of it too was you know not just like um, you know I, I think that I, I have like some brains I don't think that I'm you know a complete idiot but uh, I think what I realized is that I have I, I was never going to be able to be singularly focused on a single topic that would be required to do a PhD right it's like I mm. you know reading research I would find that like oh for you know these three months I'm reading every single like cancer study and book that's out there but then like three months later I'm just like yeah cool I'm good I want to read about diabetes like let me switch over to diabetes you know and I think that's what I and I remember I went to uh National Strength and Conditioning uh, Association conference in New Orleans back in like 2016 I remember sitting down and listening to a um, professor who is uh you know I I don't remember his name but um older older gentleman um you know kind of towards the latter half of his career and he was studying post-activation potentiation, so like a very specific part of biomechanics and, and uh, exercise performance. And I remember him going through, we're watching his presentation, he's presenting decades of research that he's, he's like covered on this like single topic. And as he's talking, I'm kind of realizing like, man, I don't know that I could ever study just one single facet of a topic for that long. And then I remember yeah. he get him getting to the end of it and saying, you know, after all these decades of research, I've realized that I still don't know anything about this. And, and I remember that I, just being like a, like a man, you know, like I think, I think for me, it's just a little like, it's uh, I like to be, you know, kind of a jack of a lot of trades. Um, yeah. I guess I don't have a preference to be a master of none, but I think that just kind of comes with the territory of, you know, when you yeah. want to be interested in a lot of different fields. I, I was going to say like, you know, when you, when you read a topic for like three months, for example, and you really dive deep into it, you will realize then there's so much more to know so and much. the less you actually know. For example, like cancer, like I doubt you can actually go through everything in three months because Absolutely after that, not. you're going to figure out that there are different types of cancers. There yep. are different types of cells. There are different types of pathogenesis and it's, it's going to be more and more and more. So, you know, 
like what I did, I chose diabetes and cardiovascular disease as my um, specialization. Mm -hmm. But my research itself is looking at metabolism of type two diabetic heart in hypoxia specifically, mm. um, and using hypoxia as a subset of ischemia, which is you know the, the lack of blood flow that that causes um, myocardial infarction or heart heart attacks. And that is very while that is very specific. I also needed to know everything to know about. About, about cardiovascular disease, about diabetes, about mm -hmm. metabolism. So there's so much to learn in, in three years. But obviously, if I'm comparing myself to academia, to a professor, they do it for decades, right? right. They, they do it on another whole level, like a yeah. beast level. So that's, that's, that was why I left academia and, and come into um, industry, because I feel exactly the same way you do where all these research all these insights all these learnings and knowledge are bottled up in a in a lab or just write written up in a, a, a published paper it needs to go out to public it needs to totally. be applied mm -hmm. um and absolutely can save lives um and the first company i worked for was a diabetes management program um, company based in singapore mm -hmm. and they they use an app to track food and track weight and activity and glucose. And that really, as you said you know, earlier, it, it really changes people's lives because some people got off their medication, some people really reverse their diabetes. And that's when I see my knowledge and my work impacting others' um, yeah. lives. So let's switch gear a little bit. And, and I know you talked a little bit about performance. Let's start there and then we'll mm -hmm. go into the metabolic health part of things. What do you think the role of ketogenic diet versus exogenous ketones in uh, performance? And as you said, you, know, you, you went into quite deep in, you know, outside of endurance um, athletes, endurance performance um, using ketones or presence of ketones. Um, tell us more about what you found in exercises or, 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 or workouts that are not endurance and then the role of exogenous ketones versus keto diet. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think the biggest thing that we found is that, um, you know, in, in this was a little more novel at the time versus now, I think more people understand this, but was that, you know, we actually can perform a lot of really impressive physical feats without carbohydrates. Like, you know, it really was this notion for the longest period of time that like you have to have carbohydrates to fuel you have to carb load before exercise you have to you know replenish glycogen through carbohydrate consumption post-exercise and there really was no other way there was no coaches really teaching anything different and if you you did teach anything different you were a quack um and you know once we started like the the endurance component of it um was was really easy to understand right like you could look at it and you could see okay what we see is that when you consume a low, lower carbohydrate diet and you become fat adapted um, your body is able to transition into this much larger fuel source and fat that it can burn for energy. And then it can also produce ketones, which is an additional fuel source that can allow you to continue exercise. Um, so, you know, it kind of makes sense that it works. And then as the years went on, we saw, um, you know, Volek published that monumental study in 2016, where he found that glycogen resynthesis rates, which was kind of this big driver of why people were consuming carbohydrates, uh, were actually this, this, the same in people who weren't consuming carbohydrates. Uh, people who are kind of longer term keto adapted athletes and that was kind of this under that that was kind of like the nail in the coffin on like you know not not that one is necessarily better than the other but that you know one uh, is just as good of an option as the other and uh you know that you can kind of choose which way is is best for you um, but for a long time there was kind of still this notion that like 
more like glycolytic things like um you know strength based and and power based stuff would we would see kind of like a big detriment through not consuming carbohydrates and a lot of this was kind of centered around those those age old thoughts around you know carb loading and stuff but then also it was based on these very short duration studies um you know three to five day maybe seven day studies looking at athletes on the keto diet and then seeing decrements in and strength and decrements in and different power metrics um, and you know, what, what we know now, and especially for anybody who's done keto is that it takes your body some time to keto adapt. If you've never done keto before, and let's say, you know, you go in and you do your one rep max for, for bench press, and then you start the keto diet and three days later, you go in and do it again. Anybody who's done keto knows you're going to be a little bit weaker at that point because your body has, has not adapted. Um, so we were running a little bit longer duration studies in, in athletes. Um, and we were doing it, you know, we had some athletes, but we also had just a generally like a, one of the studies that I helped head up was um, just college students who weren't necessarily athletes, but they were all like well-trained, you know, people who were training like three to four days a week. Um, and what we saw is that, you know, once their body got adapted, that they were able to hit a lot of the same marks. Like they were able to, to kind of meet, um, you know, the, the same strength metrics, the same power metrics. Um, they weren't really seeing decrements as they started getting adapted to the diet. So that kind of like opened the door to like, oh, maybe there's some application and utility into these other things. And then, you know, there was some some really good like practical studies that came out around that time too. You know, Rachel Gregory published a really cool study looking at kind of general population CrossFit athletes on like I think it was like a twelve eight week or twelve week keto diet, um, and saw that they were able to maintain you know a lot of their performance stuff. So it started to become really clear that for the average joe and i say average joe is you know anybody who's not getting paid to play professional sports or who's not doing like extreme um you know extreme sport things that you know if, if you tailor your diet the right way your keto diet the right way which i think involves um you know consuming more protein than probably what's the the traditional recommendations um you know timing up your your food well supplementing with electrolytes um things like that that you can be you can perform just as well and and that I think is a big finding because for the general population who's exercising, um, it's not, your goal isn't necessarily to be in the 1%. Like you don't need to go into your gym and be in the 1% in strength. Like you're trying to be healthy, right? Yeah. Um, you're trying to feel good day, day in and day out. So, you know, not consuming carbohydrates for those people, um, especially if they're metabolically damaged is going to be a good way to help them get more out of their exercise. They're going to be able to still make a lot of improvements. Um, you can also gain muscle, you know, without carbs, contrary to what people had, had thought at that time. Um, so I think that was, that was a big thing. And then as I started working, and this is where kind of the exogenous ketones came in, is that when I started working with um, professional athletes and like professional football players and, and baseball players and stuff, uh, I started realizing that, you know, for them, performance is their number one goal. Um, you know, being in the, being 1% better for them is a big deal. That's the difference between, you know, winning their competition, um, getting, you know, that salary that kind of sets them up for the rest of their lives. Like it really is a big deal for them. Um, and you know, for them, carbohydrates, like they, carbohydrates can provide an ergogenic aid. They can provide a boost in sports performance, especially, uh, if you are, you know, uh, metabolically healthy and your body is, you know, carb tolerant and, and insulin sensitive, then these things are really good for you to consume. Um, and that's when I think exogenous ketones started really getting really interesting because exogenous key or ketones in general have unique benefits related to performance. Um, outside of just being a fuel source, you know, they have the ability to, um, you know, reduce inflammation produced from uh, metabolism. They can increase natural antioxidant production. Um, you know, there's even some, some interesting research around them being able to stimulate protein synthesis, um, which, you know, I think is, is another interesting thing around them. So there's a lot of utility to them. Um, but for the, 
you know, the wide receiver in the NFL who's 6% body fat um, and is extremely metabolically healthy, uh, you know, and, and can, you know, take carbohydrates and perform really well. It doesn't make sense for them to just go full keto, you know, 30 grams of carbohydrates, ketogenic diet. Um, you know, they're, they're, they may see that kind of one or 2% dip in performance that can, you know, potentially harm them. So, and, and, and affect their performance. So where exogenous ketones come in is that you can kind of get the best of both worlds. You can have elevated ketones, you can get those benefits from the ketones, um, while also, you know, they kind of call this the dual fuel approach while also getting, um, the benefits from the, the energy that you get from carbohydrates. Um, and then of course, and we can get into this, you know, a little bit later, but like, of course there's the. Um, you know, in, in football specifically in that example, the, the utility for traumatic brain injury and concussion, which I think is something that is um, not talked about enough, um, you know, kind of the metabolic side of that. But even outside of that, there's just a lot of benefit to being able to have both of those things available. So exogenous ketones have created this ability for people to not have to choose between one or the other. You know, you don't mm -hmm. have to choose between having glucose as your primary fuel source and having ketones circulating. You know, you can do both. Um, and just anecdotally, you know, somebody who still plays, you know, basketball at a, you know, fairly high level and, and everything is that I see, uh, I've seen an incredible boost in performance. Like I feel better on the basketball court now at 30 years old than I did at 21 when I was, you know, actually, uh, you know, a young college athlete and everything. So um, it, it is an interesting thing. And I, and I hope it's, it's kind of an area that will continue to grow with awareness around it because, you know, I, I'm so, I'm, I'm a sports junkie. Like I love uh, human performance. I love looking at these like top athletes of LeBron James's and you know all these people like that and it's like I would just love to see these guys on ketones right like I would love to see you know what could be the extra one to two percent for them if they were kind of ma maximizing the metabolic component of their human performance um, so hopefully we get to that you know one day where that becomes a little bit more mainstream and I think we're, we're heading in that direction um, but as we know with anything science and um, especially sports science is very dogmatic and there's a lot of resistance to change from the status quo so um, you know, right, there, right, there's always right. that famous saying that uh, a lot of people have to die for change to happen. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I don't yeah. know that it has to go that far, but a lot of people are going to have to put their egos aside and realize that maybe there's, um, you know, other ways to optimize human performance for these athletes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well said. And for our listeners as well, like when you go on ketogenic diet, you are depleting your carb sources, you're depleting your glycogen and mm. therefore your body will start creating ketones from fats in your liver so that's why in a physiological state it's almost impossible to have high glucose in your body and high ketones because when you have high glucose you're spiking up your insulin levels and that insulin level is what inhibits the ketogenesis or ketone production in your liver and mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you this question as well Chris I know a lot of our customers our, our listeners also have asked this question is if it is not a naturally physiological condition am i tempering with the wrong thing am i am i playing with fire here if i'm having exogenous ketones well i one i you know screw up my metabolism or two build up tolerance to it what what are your thoughts about it i'll, I'll i can share about my what my thoughts are but I, i'm curious to hear what your thoughts about it yeah i mean it's it's an interesting concept and admittedly we do need a lot more research and in, into like questions like that right like i think we it's becoming well established that ketones are safe it's you know well established that they can be effective for a number of different things but some of those little like mechanistic things i think we still you know could benefit for, from some more research around but i think if you just look at the way that 
um, you know, especially a product like HVMN has that is um, more bio identical to what your body produces versus some of the other things that are out on the market. Um, you know, the, the utilization by the body and what you can just tell by the way that you feel when you take it, the utilization by the body is, is a lot superior versus, you know, something else. So I think, you know, that's, that's one thing, but I think the big question that a lot of people tend to have with this is like, if I take exogenous ketones, um, is it going to like stop my natural ketone production? Because the, one of the big mistakes that was made early on with exogenous ketones is that, you know, they were marketed as like a weight loss thing. Um, because for some reason mm -hmm. people would associate having elevated ketones with weight loss. Um, but as you kind of highlighted, like the ketones that are produced naturally, those occur from low insulin levels, stimulating the body to release fatty acids and the body to burn those fatty acids and some of those fatty acids being burned in the liver and converted to ketones. So in that sense, you know, ketones can be a marker of weight loss and fat loss, but in the sense of taking a drink, they're not going to directly. Now I do think there's some interesting, you know, supporting mechanisms, but they're not going to directly cause weight loss. Um, so, you know, I think people, they get a little bit worried about that. Like, you know, okay, if I'm going for keto for weight loss, for instance, and I take this, um, is it going to prevent my body from, you know, producing ketones naturally and burning fat? And the answer mm -hmm. I think, you know, can be, again, we don't, we don't know this for certain. There hasn't been a great study that's like looked at this and really to design a study like this would be hard. But I think what we, you can just see through yourself and you can actually, you know, test this yourself. If you get a ketone meter, um, you can just, you know, measure your baseline ketones. Let's say that they're, and I'll give an example. I did it recently. Um, you know, my baseline ketones, I woke up fasted sitting around like 0.5 millimolars. I take uh, the HVMN um, somewhere around you know, between like 15 minutes and an hour is when I typically start to see the peak. Uh, oh, I start, I see the rise and I start to see the peak in there. You know, it gets up to anywhere between like 1.5 and two millimolars. And then, you know, two hours and then it start, you know, two hour mark, three hour mark, it starts tapering back down. And then we go back, I go back down to 0.5 at the end and I kind of maintain 0.5. Um, and then if I were to continue fasting, maybe it would start creeping up again from the fast. But what, what doesn't happen is that my ketones never go back to zero. So, and I think that's, that's kind of the, one of the indications of like, if it was blunting my natural ketone production, if it was making my body resistant to burning fat and producing ketones, then I would expect that number after I've burnt through those exogenous ketones to be at zero, um, which I've never seen, you know, both in the lab setting when I was studying exogenous ketones in, um, the, the subjects that we would have or in myself. So, um, I don't think that there's, you know, anything to, to fear about it and being somebody, I mean, you know, I've had exogenous ketones in my system for a long time. Like back in 2015, we were, you know, raw powders um, in the laboratory, like testing all these different things. Um, and I've had them in, so I've, you know, I don't know that there's, there's probably not a lot of people that have had more exogenous ketones in their body than me. Um, and I haven't developed any sort of intolerance to them over the last uh, six years of, of doing that. So, you know, of course that's an antidote, but um, haven't heard, you know, that from anybody else either. So uh, I think that they're, you know, when you look at them that way, you realize that like they, they can't be looked at as a replace. I think the only situation where ketones could be uh, exogenous ketones could be looked at as a replacement to the diet would be in that professional athlete elite. They're not looking for any other benefits other than just really performance. Then they could be a replacement to it. But for everybody else who's looking for the, you know, the other benefits that come with keto, like the overall improvement in metabolic health and stuff, they're, they're not going to ever be a replacement for that, but they're really good support for that. And they're a really good way for you to get more out of that and, and to kind of maximize. And especially like, I always like to just drop this line in there too, that I think the best utilization of an exogenous ketone is in conjunction with a keto diet um, for the general population, because you are, you know, when on keto, you become really efficient at utilizing ketones. 
um, and you, your body's kind of primed to do so. So getting that bump up that you get from the exogenous ketones, your body's in a great state to be able to use those versus somebody who's maybe following the standard American diet is incredibly insulin resistant, um, hasn't really ever been in a state of natural ketosis. So they don't have this upregulation of these transporters that are really important to help get ketones into the cells um, might not be as beneficial as somebody and not, not saying no benefit, but not beneficial as somebody who is primed to take those ketones in and use them. And I think that's why we see, you know, people in this space. I remember, you know, introducing HBMN to a, a couple like keto dieters and them just being like, you know, I took this 20 minutes ago and I just hit a PR in the gym. Or like I took this like before a presentation yeah. for the first time and my brain was just like firing on all cylinders. And it's like, yeah, because your body is like ready to soak up those ketones and use them. So I haven't seen anything um, yet that has made me be concerned about, you know, blunting any sort of natural production or making us intolerant to them. Um, but, you know, I I'm curious if you've seen anything different uh, on your side with the research. No, I haven't seen either. And, and the way I explain it as well is um, not to compare ketones to drugs, to stimulants, because mm -hmm. our bodies naturally and evolutionarily have been designed to be able to one, produce ketones and two, metabolize ketones. So we already have all the enzymes sitting there. We already mm -hmm. have all the DNA codes that can produce those enzymes that um, transport ketones into the cell, metabolize them and all that, right? So you providing the substrate in and of itself will not create something that is not natural, right? Mm -hmm. So unlike a stimulant where you need something to stimulate, you know, brain activity, for example, like, like coffee, for example, like over time, that stimulation builds up tolerance. And mm -hmm. that's the difference here because ketone is a natural substrate. It's how you know, we're not resistant to proteins. We are not resistant mm -hmm. to fat, right? They are just substrates that provide um, energy, but on top of that, also having signaling properties that help with um, uh, everyday, you know, sort of tasks and, and inflammation and all of that. Yeah. So um, I think people need to switch their, their thinking around exogenous ketone that it, it is not a drug, but it is, a, you know, I think the first sort of two episodes ago um, when I interviewed do, uh, Dr. Dom D'Agostino and Dr. Mm. Angela Poff, and she worded it very nicely. Ketone is a substrate or a, um, a, a molecule, a food molecule that has drug-like properties yeah. because of the effect that it has on your brain, on your metabolism, on signaling. So in and of itself, it shouldn't build, build any, any tolerance. And as you said, like it does not really um, blunt your production of ketones in the long run because mm -hmm. when you have exogenous ketones, what they have seen in studies is that they do upregulate these enzymes, uh, enzymes uh, transporters that bring ketones into the cell as well as the enzymes that metabolize ketones for energy. So if you mm -hmm. think about it, you are basically priming your body to be able to metabolize these ketones. So when you your exogenous ketones has gone off, as you've metabolized them, you are switching it back to your internal, to your endogenous ketones that you produce mm -hmm. yourself. And you're now more efficient because all these enzymes are already fired up as well because they're upregulated yeah. during your uh, exogenous ketone consumption. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting, um, you know, possible utilities of exogenous ketones. And really when I, when I first started researching exogenous ketones, this was kind of the first use case that I had like 
kind of stumbled across that I thought would be great is really to help with that keto adaptation period because of what you just said. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we do have research that shows and, and, you know, I'm not sure it's been a little bit since I've looked at this part of the research. So at the time it was, you know, more cell culture stuff, but we do see that, you know, when these cells are exposed to even exogenous ketones, there is an upregulation of these transport, these MCT transporters that are required for these to be taken into the cells and used for energy. Um, and what we know is that like that can, it can take a little bit for that to happen. Like if you're somebody who is really insulin resistant um, and, and you, you know, and you've been following the standard American diet for a really long period of time, you haven't really ever been on a low carb diet. It can take your body a while to get to the point where it's producing a sufficient amount of ketones to be able to upregulate those transporters naturally. That's why we kind of see uh, a lag in people between like, oh, I started seeing like 0.3 millimolars on my ketone meter, but I still feel like crap, like what's going on? And it's like, well, you, yeah. you haven't really reached that threshold where you're starting to upregulate those transporters to use those efficiently. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really good utility is like, you know, taking those things early on um, can, can kind of get you that higher level than what you would be able to achieve, um, at that time naturally that I think can upregulate those transporters a little bit more quickly and, and help you get through that. And just as kind of like an acute benefit, you know, the exogenous ketones provide a lot of things like energy and mood boosting and cognitive function improvements that like are just naturally going to make the diet easier. I mean, so many people start keto and they fall off because they feel like crap initially. Right. And, and sometimes mm -hmm. that's because of electrolytes, but a lot of times it's also because their body has is not keto adapted yet. It's not really like, uh, you know, uh, used to utilizing these these ketones. So, um, you know, if you feel like crap all the time, you know, you are more likely to, um, you know, hunger is another one. You're more likely to be hungry and, you know, binge eat carbohydrates and uh, then think that keto is not for you. Or you're more likely to be like, oh, you know, I tried keto. You hear it all the time. I tried keto and it just wasn't for me. And mm -hmm. you're like, well, how long did you try it for? And it's like seven days and I felt like shit. And you're like, oh, okay, well, like you haven't, you know, you didn't get to the part where it's great. You didn't get to that part where you're keto adapted. So I think that acutely they can kind of help you just during that time feel better. But then also I think that they can help you get adapted more quickly. And that's something I would love to see a study at is just looking at, you know, different markers of keto adaptation uh, and seeing the difference between somebody just starting the keto diet, you know, under 30 grams of carbs as is versus somebody, you know, doing that plus exogenous ketones. And um, just from what I've seen anecdotally and myself and other people that that period um, is a lot smoother. It's a much easier transition when you have the aid of exogenous ketones. Yeah, I think I think a study like that would be very informative, and it's also mm -hmm. should be quite straightforward study as well. We can measure, um, you know, the the transporters themselves. We can, mm -hmm. you know, do some biopsies and looking at upregulation of different proteins that are related to keto metabolism and then we can measure subjective feeling of how that person is during that transition and remember guys mm -hmm. like every time you introduce a new diet you introduce something new that you introduce a change in general you are introducing yeah. stress to your body you need to let mm -hmm. your body adapt to it you need to let your body really get used to the new change um, and usually that's when, you know, the adaptation period takes place and you may feel, you know, not great, but give it time and then, and then you will feel the benefit. So I'm going to switch yeah. gear a little bit here from, you mm -hmm. know, uh, performance to metabolic health. Um, yeah. you know, since I know you're part of BioCoach and would love to talk a bit on, on the role of BioCoach, what, what BioCoach does. And, and mm -hmm. the question for you, Chris is, is low carb or keto diet? the answer to this ever-growing chronic disease prevalence uh, in america mm -hmm. in a lot of developed countries 
uh, and all around the world, really. Um, so is this is this the answer, or is there something else that we are, we should be looking at? Yeah. So I think that it's it's a answer, right? It's one potential answer. Um, and you know, by way of you know, the reason why I'm the ketologist is because I believe that it's one of the best ways that's out there. Uh, I think that if we look at you know the way that the reason why we have poor metabolic health. Uh, really does stem from nutrition. Now, of course, there's other things, lifestyle factors, environmental factors, sedentary lifestyle, all these things that can contribute to it. But really, for like 80-20 ruling it, um, nutrition is is the big driver. And, you know, I think the, there's kind of two big parts of nutrition, I think, that are driving this um, metabolic health epidemic that we have. And I think it's the overconsumption of processed carbohydrates and then the overconsumption of seed oils. Um, so we'll talk about kind of the carbohydrate component of that first. Um, but if we look at, you know, and, and generally too, just the overconsumption of food, right? Just consuming too many calories. So, you know, the, the combination of these things make us insulin resistant. Like when I, I kind of use uh, the terms insulin resistant and, and um, you know, metabolic, poor metabolic health interchangeably, because if you are insulin resistant, you have poor metabolic health. If you have poor metabolic health, you're insulin resistant. Um, and I think when we, we look at it like that, it's like, if that's the, the big issue, well, what are the ways that we can improve metabolic health and improve insulin resistance? And there's, there are several ways you can do it. You can do it by eating lower calorie diet, right? Um, you can do it by cutting out carbohydrates. Um, you could do it by, you know, intermittent fasting, which is going to also, you know, kind of, ta you're going to reduce calorie consumption naturally because of that. And you're going to probably reduce carbohydrate, total carbohydrate consumption. Um, so there's a lot of different tools that you can use to get to this goal of kind of pulling back on calories a little bit, lowering your carbohydrate intake so that you can allow yourself to become more insulin sensitive. You can reverse that insulin resistance and you can improve your metabolic health. Um, and while there are a lot of tools out there, like the reason why I think keto tends to be the best one is because of the other things that come along with it. So, you know, it's very well established that on a ketogenic diet through reducing your carbohydrate consumption, you're going to improve your um, really key metabolic health markers. You're going to improve um, fasting blood sugar, fasting insulin, A1C, um, a lot of cardiovascular uh, markers, um, you know, uh, inflammation, all these things that you're going to improve. So we kind of know that. But then in addition to that, there's the components of the diet that make it a little bit easier um, to stick with this change long term. So we know that when you follow a low carb ketogenic diet, you see improvements in hunger hormones typically. Um, which it, we, you know, if you look at a low calorie diet, for instance, we see the opposite where hunger hormones spike when we're on a low calorie diet. Um, and it makes it hard for us to maintain that diet and not want to binge eat and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I always like to make that kind of distinction because there's not just what happens in a laboratory setting in a controlled condition. Like what matters is what happens out there in the real world. And if I'm trying to diet and improve my metabolic health, and I'm walking around every day tracking my calories and saying, you know, oh, I'm going to eat 1500 calories today. And then, you know, every time I walk by a bagel shop, I like want to go in or I walk by a bakery, I like want sweets really bad. And then one day I just break and I binge eat and then I decide I'm not going to diet for, you know, another three months because of that. Like that, that doesn't, isn't going to work. Like even though it would have worked if I would have stuck with it, like it's not practically very effective for a lot of people. Um, and what a lot of people will find a lot easier than that is to say, you know what, I'm just not going to eat this food group and carbohydrates. Um, and that's going to make a big difference for improving these metabolic health markers. And actually I feel a lot better when I do that. Um, I, instead of feeling tired and groggy, like most people do when they diet, I actually feel energetic. Uh, I feel like I have a better mood. My brain's functioning really well. I don't have hunger. I have this stable blood sugar, um, which is kind of the reason why you're experiencing all those things that I just said. 
Um, so that is why I think it is such a great option is that it's just an easier way to do it. Like I hear time and time again, people being, and, and you, it's funny cause we have this argument with like the calories in calories out folks where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, people will be like, Oh, well, you know, the only reason why keto works is because you're in a calorie deficit. And while I don't think that's true, there's a lot of additional benefits to it. A lot of what you get out of keto is because of a calorie deficit. But the point is that it's easier to maintain that calorie deficit on a keto diet than it is on other diets because of those factors that I just mentioned. So that's why I I think it's easier. Like for a lot of people, you know, you're going to find that it's a lot easier to just like not eat the candy bar than it is to eat half of the candy bar. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a lot easier to like, you know, consume meat and vegetables rather than, you know, going to McDonald's and, and, you know, getting like a happy meal and that, you know, to keep your calories low and then, you know, trying to to make it to like three hours before you like have another snack and stuff like that. That's hard. Whereas like for a lot of people find keto is like, it's, it's kind of, um, it's an, just a lot easier way to do it. You don't have to maybe track your calories. You can kind of naturally fall into that calorie deficit. Um, so I think, that's the reason why I get excited about it. Um, I think that it's, it's a much more sustainable approach. Um, now, of course there's, you know, the, the mainstream kind of growth of ketogenic diets and low carb dieting has introduced new obstacles to this. You know, now we do have food products that are, you know, hyper sweet, hyper palatable that can, um, kind of make it a little bit more difficult for us to maintain the, the kind of even keel hunger and stuff like that. Or, you know, you have these products that really, they say they're keto, but they're really not, you know, you test your blood sugar and they spike your blood sugar, like a hundred points. And, and, you know, people who aren't testing their blood sugar wouldn't know that that's going on. So they can't figure out why they're not seeing, you know, the benefits that everybody talks about with keto. So there are new obstacles that have been introduced, um, as the kind of industry has gotten involved in this. But I think as a whole, if ketogenic dieting is done the right way, it's the, fastest, uh, easiest, and in my opinion, most sustainable way to improve your metabolic health. Um, so I think that for most people, it is going to be the answer to this metabolic health epidemic. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was such a great explanation. You know, you, you covered very nicely. And even if people say is if, even if it is the calorie deficit that comes of ketogenic diet, some mm-hmm. people actually can you know use some of the calorie deficit because of the excess calories that we've been consuming these days because of the hyper palatable food that we're having um that has you know that are calorie dense maybe we could use some calorie deficit in our lives and that could you know eventually improve your insulin sensitivity and also ultimately you know just having that that relationship with food having that clearer like healthier relationship with food also puts our mind in a better place in order to work out for example in order to mm-hmm. live that healthier lifestyle and that all ties together um in, in really combating this chronic disease prevalence because yeah. it's not just you know just food it's not just exercise it's not just mental health it's mm-hmm. all of them combined together and if you can you know, sort of, I wouldn't say control, but if you can improve one aspect of it, um, you can certainly contribute to the progress of the other aspect of things. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really big thing and we see that all the time. Like, you know, if you're like metabolically damaged and, um, you know, which like, if you look at the wide variety of, uh, health impairments that come from insulin resistance. I mean, it's everything from, you know, type two diabetes all the way to you just like being, having a bad mood and low energy, right? Like it's such a broad spectrum of issues that you have. And you start seeing that like if you're insulin resistant and you're metabolically damaged, like 
and you feel that way, not only is this your health going to be poor, but like how and, and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be craving uh, poor foods. You're going to be you know hungry all the time. You're going to be more likely to mess up the nutrition component. But also, like, how are you going to get to the gym if you don't feel great? Um, you know, how are you going to maintain that schedule? If, if waking up at, you know, for some people waking up at 5 a.m. is what's required for you to get in the gym. It's the only time that's available. Well, how are you going to wake up at that time if you feel like crap? Um, you know, how are you going to uh, perform well at work if your brain isn't functioning optimally? So it's, it, I think that is what we see is that when people follow this, you know, they get the weight. Weight loss happens very quickly on keto. Um, you know, you can see improvements in, in some of those metabolic markers like A1C, blood sugar, uh, and insulin very, very quickly on it. And then once those changes start happening, then people start realizing like, oh, I can actually go to the gym now. And actually, because I lost 20 pounds, my knees don't hurt anymore when I'm at the gym like they used to. So I actually enjoy being here. And like I woke up today full of energy, not feeling like I needed to guzzle a pot of coffee to, to, to get out of bed. Like and I'm actually excited to go into this work presentation because like I prepared really well for it. And I'm like pumped to like talk to like my coworker. You know, it's like all of these kind of downstream trickle effects that happen that just generally lead to a better overall quality of life. And um, we actually at BioCoach, we published a, uh, an article recently looking at quality of life metrics from low carb dieters uh, or low carb dieting and diabetics. And there really is, you see a drastic difference in those things because, you know, rather than like walking around feeling sad that I can, you know, I can only eat this many calories and, um, and, and which by the way, taking the calorie approach doesn't usually give you all those other benefits, those downstream benefits that we're talking about. You know, instead people feel like, oh, I get to eat um, steak again. I didn't realize that steak and eggs was actually good for me. Like, holy cow. And like, oh, you know, I can actually make these, you know, this cauliflower taste pretty darn good. And um, so, you know, like the nutrition component's good, but then you get these downstream effects, like being in a better mood, having more energy, um, that, you know, there's quality of life improvement just in those things. But then you think about what those things impact. Oh, now I don't feel guilty um, about the fact that I had no energy to play with my kids, right? So now I feel great um, and I feel happy just because I was able to be like a good parent and like, you know, give more to like my children, right? So then you get even another level of like downstream benefit that you're getting from these things that happen. So there is just a big quality of life improvement. And I think that's a big thing that's missing in these like calories in versus calories out or, you know, dietary debates is like, I don't care what happens in the lab setting when we're looking at five different markers. Um, I care what happens to the mom who, you know, doesn't feel good and is, you know, dealing with all these health issues and is going into their doctor and uh, looking for answers and not getting them and put on all these medications. And then all of a sudden starts this diet and all of those things improve like that to me matters a lot more about, you know, than a study that tells me that, you know, keto versus this diet leads to the same amount of fat burning or something like that. It's like, let's, right. let's look at the bigger picture. Absolutely. And, and what does, what role does BioCoach play in all of this? Yeah. So, you know, what we're doing at BioCoach is we are, so to give a little bit of a picture of like what we are. So we're a, um, we're both a hardware and software company. We have a, um, a medical device. I actually have it right here, our blood glucose and ketone meter. Um, so we've talked about tracking ketones and glucose in this episode. Uh, so we have this and then this uh, tracks um, and, and reports all of the data into an app. So, and there's a lot of other companies that have similar products to this, um, an app that will track your trends over time and show your charts and show your responses to food. Um, but what we're realizing through like just talking to um, customers and, and people in the space, like, you know, me talking to people on my social media is that, um, people just need guidance. They need to know what to do. And then not only do they need to know what to do, they need support in getting that done. You know, they need somebody to kind of walk with them along the way. 
Uh, and that's really what the, the purpose of, of BioCoach is and, and what we're doing in our app is we're creating, you know, these, uh, these health journeys that you can join where these health experts are walking you through what it means, like what intermittent fasting looks like, what ketogenic dieting is, uh, how to interpret your numbers, how to know which foods uh, are best for your, your metabolic health. Um, right now as you know where you are today what is the best 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 kind of approach for you to reach your goals um, and then kind of putting around these behavioral change components so that you can better stick to this so you know adding we have uh, gamification and reward systems built into the app to kind of help people with those things so the goal is to like you know there's there's a subset population of there's a subset of the population who will look at the research and they'll figure out what's best for them and they'll do it they'll run through a brick wall to do it and admittedly right. like i'm kind of one of those people like i look at food as function a lot of times um, if you tell me that something's good for me i don't care if it tastes bad or you know like i'll just do what what's required for for me to be healthy um and it's it's a little bit to be honest it's easier for me to um f to maintain health because of that but a larger percentage of the population, um, you know, they're not really willing to like, you know, no, like most people know that they're not supposed to have a donut for breakfast, right? Like nobody's thinking that that's a healthy thing to start your day with, right? Um, you know, nobody's going to a gas station getting a, you know, 52 ounce soda and thinking that's good for them. Um, so, you know, maybe there are people that are doing that. So we are trying to reach them too and show and tell them that that's, that is not good for them. But really right. what we're trying to do is we're trying to show them, you know, why it's not good for them. Like, hey, why don't you you know, drink that soda and test your blood sugar. And then let me show you what your results are. And then here's right. what, what, you know, that result, here's what that means for you. Um, but then also telling them like, I know you don't want to eat that donut and we want to help you not want to eat that donut anymore either. So we want to show you options. We want to, um, we have, you know, meal planning as well as um, meal prep, like, uh, you know, at home, um, like meal delivery services that are built into our, our program as well, where it's like, you know, oh, if you if your biggest problem is that, you know, you're at lunch at work and, you know, they just keep having junk food in, in the um, break room and, and, you know, you're going out on like all these you're traveling and you're having a hard time you know eating good food. Like we want to provide these foods for you to help you actually reach that goal. Um, so it's not just about telling people, you know, I think the, the simple way that we like to talk about it is that a lot of these other apps out there will tell you what you've done. Um, with you know based on the data but we're trying to tell you what to do uh, and how you can improve that so so we're trying to be a little bit more applicable and um, so that's that's really the mission that we're on and, and it's a mission that um, you know it's it's a big one like you know, 89 percent of the population is metabolically damaged and that means yeah. that like you know almost all of the population is uh, is who we're trying to help which you know as uh, somebody who's in the marketing department um, that's not really how you typically go about product development and marketing is to say you know oh we're going to try to reach everybody right like that's generally not a good idea um, but that's what our goal is is we're trying to help as many people as possible um, who who are trying you know on both sides of it whether it's the people who know and then they want to make the improvements um, or it's the people who don't know and we want to help them realize, you know, that there's there's another way and that, you know, being like, here's what comes with improving your metabolic health. So um, we're we're at, we're on the journey and we have a lot of work to do. Um, we're yeah. in the product development stage and we have, you know, beta testers, um, you know, testing the app right now. We're you know gearing up for January 1st launch out to the public. Um, and it, it really is exciting. It, it's like to see the product. Uh, really come to life and to see the feedback that we're getting from our users. Um, I, it's just like, it's a motivator. You talk about passion earlier in this episode. It's like, it's, 
it's so easy for me to wait. Like I wake up every day and like my feet just can't hit the ground soon enough because I want to get out the door and like, you know, get this done. Like, and, and it's like your, your motivation and your why becomes so much greater when you realize that there's so many people that can be helped. And then you get that feedback from people that you're actually helping. Um, so it's amazing. So, yeah, so we're, you know, we're trying to, to do a lot and we're making tons of mistakes and breaking a lot of stuff along the way. But I think that we're, uh, you know, we're making a lot of, of like headway. And I think that we're, um, you know, making progress towards something that I think is going to help a lot of people. That's absolutely great. So guys, if you guys feel like, you know, you could benefit from this, you know, follow them, make sure you, you know, when, when the product's coming out from my coach and, and sign up. Right. Um, yeah. so one last pillar of, of questions that I want to cover before we, mm-hmm. we end this podcast is neurodegenerative diseases, right? Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about metabolism, metabolic health. Do you think that neurodegenerative diseases is just a progression where it's because our lifespan has ex- extended over you know the past few centuries or so, or is there something to do with metabolic health? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way to phrase that question. Um, and I think it is a little bit of both. Um, and, and because, you know, definitely, you know, as we age, like aging in general is going to lead to deterioration, right? Um, but the way that we live our lives and our poor, the, the kind of the poor metabolic health that is kind of characterized by most uh, humans now um, is what determines the rate in which we age. So, you know, we are, we're progressing that aging process more quickly and we're, um, you know, poor metabolism is making us um, age in, in maybe unnatural ways or just not or inefficient ways, I guess I could say. Um, so I think that it is it's a little bit of both. But what we're seeing with neurodegenerative diseases, irrespective of age, is that there's this metabolic component that is there. Um, you know, we're, and it's really one of the defining hallmarks. And, you know, a lot of people have thought that genetics is the big thing or, you know, the, the big kind of uh, uh, thing recently was the, the amyloid plaques. And we realized that, you know, the research on that was a little bit fudged, uh, not really what we thought it was. And, and that was kind of what was defining a lot of the um, new research that was coming out and is what was kind of uh, determining the direction and treatment protocols and pharmaceutical development and all these things. And, you know, we realized that those things aren't as consistent as we thought they were. But one thing that is definitely consistent in these neurodegenerative conditions is poor metabolic health. We see the brain, mm-hmm. um, you know, having neuroinflammation. We have it's insulin resistant. It's inefficiently using glucose. There's an energy deficit. Um, all of these things. And, and that's regardless of, you know, you can see that in somebody as young as 30 years old. Uh, maybe they're not displaying uh, very noticeable signs yet, but the, the metabolic component is there. And you can see it in people who are 90 years old. So um, I don't think that age is really the best factor there. And I think I'm kind of drawing, a, I believe the study um, that Dr. Bickman points out is there's a study that kind of looked, and it's epidemiology, but it talks about how like insulin resistance is actually a better predictor than even age. Um, mm. is when it comes to uh, your risk of neurodegenerative diseases. So, um, you know, and, and when you look at the fact that like, yes, older people, um, you know, you will tend to have a, a more, a larger decline in cognitive health as you get older. But the question is, is, is that because you're getting older or is it because that you're living longer with poor metabolic health, right? Like if you, exactly. if, if people were dying at 50 um, and with poor metabolic health versus, you know, now dying at 90 with poor metabolic health, well, that's just 40 more years of having poor metabolic health. It's going to just be leading to continued deterioration of the brain. So um, there's so much work that needs to be done in this area. Um, and I think that the recent findings with the amyloid plaque thing, I think, is going to help drive more focus on 
this metabolic side of, of neurodegenerative diseases. So I, I hope that it will help accelerate the research and accelerate the treatment and even the pharmaceutical development, because I do think that there is a role for pharmaceuticals in this side of things if we know the right pathways and, the, and we kind of understand that metabolic side of it. Um, so I hope that it will kind of accelerate it. But irrespective of, of the research that still needs to be done, what we know is that being insulin resistant and having poor metabolic health is going to be something that is a, a massive driver of neurodegenerative diseases, um, which to me, I think is, is the best news that I've ever heard, right? Because um, when you think that it's a genetic issue and you think that there's nothing you can do about it, well, mm -hmm. that sucks and that's scary and that's sad. But when there's something you can do about it, to me, that's the most enlightening, exciting thing. Like, oh, I could actually do something every day to reduce my risk or avoid this. Even if I do have fall into that category of having a genetic predisposition for neurodegenerative diseases, I can actually choose, um, you know, through my decisions, whether or not I'm going to let that um, progress and turn into something that's going to be harmful to me, or I'm going to suppress it with the decisions that I'm making on a day to day basis. So, um, you know, not that that's an easy thing. That's not to oversimplify it and say that, you know, maintaining a lifestyle that's conducive of, of optimal metabolic health is easy, um, but it is something that's within our locus of control. Um, which mm -hmm. to me is, is uh, a lot more exciting than thinking we have to just, you know, s flip the coin and see if our genetics, uh, you know, are going to cause us to, to have Alzheimer's when we get older. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, th thanks for the, for the answer. And I think, you know, that's, that's definitely a, a very good way to look at it. Um, you know, how are we just extending our lifespan or are we extending our lifespan our lifespans while being metabolically unhealthy? I think that's, yeah. that's where it is and and that's what increasing the the prevalence and the risk of neurodegenerative diseases um one last question about you know about you really you went from being an athlete to a scientist to now a chief marketing officer of a company you know what drove your decision and if you have any advice for people who would want to be you know jack of all trades like yourself like what what would you give them well, you just got to have ADHD. That's the thing, you know, you just got to <laughs> not be able to focus on one thing. Um, no, it's, it's an interesting question. Cause I would have never, you know, I have no, like I'm, I'm chief marketing officer at BioCoach, and, uh, I have, uh, no formal training in marketing. Uh, I did not go to school for it, um, or anything like that. It, it really was kind of this natural progression. Uh, when I graduated from, uh, my graduate studies, um, I was working in a laboratory with uh, Dr. Ryan Lowry, and he was starting ketogenic.com. And um, you know, I was just a scientist at the time. My job title was uh, exercise scientist. And he kind of came to me and said, "Hey, I got this domain. Like, you know, I, I want to build a, an education site." Like, you know, he had a lot of other things he was focused on. So he was like, "You know, why don't you just kind of like get this off the ground?" Um, and so I had to like learn, you know, social media marketing and uh, graphic design and email marketing and. Um, you know, SEO and blog development and web dev and all these different things. Um, and I started to, to realize that like, oh, this, you know, that, that goal I talked about early on of being able to help this research reach more people, like having an understanding of that stuff and an understanding of the marketing is what's going to be able to make that possible, right? Like I can't just stop, you know, stand on the rooftops and shout it out and hope that I can reach a lot of people. Like in the age of technology, um, digital marketing is a way in which you can help people you know, um, get, you know, help get that message out to more people. So I think I realized that during that time. And, you know, so then I, I decided to, um, kind of do my own, uh, you know, masters, my own MBA in marketing by starting my own marketing company, um, and running that for a couple of years. And, um, you know, that really helped me get to learn a lot about, you know, marketing as a whole, 
And then, you know, I took that and was able to uh, join the perfect keto team and kind of work in their marketing department. Um, and while I was, you know, I was an education manager there, really focused on like the science and education, but I got to learn from some of the best marketers in the world. Like these people that are just incredible, um, like, you know, definitely get to go to a marketing room and be the, the dumbest person in the room, which is great because it means I get to soak up all this knowledge. Um, and, and through that, you know, got to, to gain all of these skills that then I could come to a coach like BioCoach, uh, come to a company like BioCoach that has this incredible mission um, and then, you know, be able to apply that you know, that to the science background that I have into their mission to try to help reach more people. So, you know, I think that like, you know, if I'm giving advice to anybody on it, I think it's just like not limiting yourself, um, not putting yourself in a box. Like it would have been a lot easier for me to say, well, I'm a scientist at this point, so I should go get my PhD and I should work in academics. Um, and I think that would have been a limiting belief that I don't think I would have been happy with 10 years later, you know, at this point in my life. Um, but you know, I think it's to just say like, like, and it's such a cheesy line, but the only thing that I've done consistently, uh, I talk, I make the ADHD joke because I've done so many things and I changed so many things, but the only thing that's been consistent for me has been like following my passion and working hard. Um, so while that passion is, is maybe changing, um, at different frequencies, uh, it's always kind of, um, it's, it's always going along this line of trying to help people with nutrition and health. Um, and that has just led me, you know, into this area of marketing of, of being the tool to help people do that um, and to help get that message out to more people. So, um, yeah, no, no fancy, you know, uh, real video telling you like the four best tips to become like a chief marketing <laughs> officer or, or anything. Maybe like that. it's coming. Maybe maybe <laughs> that's the next the next step. Yeah. Yeah. Some, something. I don't know if uh, I think that if you're looking for marketing advice there's a lot better marketers out there than me um, <laughs> that I think would be better to give you advice. But, um, but I think what we're doing, you know, over at BioCoach and what I get to do on a day to day basis is so fulfilling. And like, I, you know, I made that comment about waking up and feet hitting the floor. Like I really do wake up with just like this level of excitement that um, I know not everybody else is fortunate enough to get to, to experience in their lives, to wake up and feel fulfilled and um, be able to, you know, work a, a job that you're actually excited about. You go to work at like, I, you know, I dread going to bed at night because I can't, you know, continue working because I want to, you know, keep focusing on this, like, you know, this project. So that's a, a luxury that I, I try not to take for granted. And I think that, you know, the more that you do that, that thing of following your passion and, um, you know, working hard at it, the more likely you are to put yourself in a position where you can live a lifestyle like that as well. Yeah. Uh, thank you for, for the advice. You know, you always, you always will be good at, at what you love to do and mm -hmm. then you always love what you're good at yeah eventually so so try to build that relationship and build that positive cycle um and feedback loop and and you know ultimately before you realize it you are doing so well at something you already love mm -hmm. um let's wrap this up with uh one last question. I, I know I yes. said last question a couple of times. <laughs> um, what is health and modern nutrition uh, to you? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, and I think, you know, the modern part, I think, is what's really important about that. I think like nowadays we have like this, um, you know, we're seeing this big like ancestral movement, which I think is great. I think the idea of like trying to live more like our ancestors lived. Um, is generally beneficial and, and probably going to get us closer to living how a human's supposed to live. So it's going to get us closer to optimal human health. 
We also have yeah. to realize that we live in our modern society. We live in a much different environment than what our ancestors lived in. So health is is different now than it was back then. Like, you know, our exo- like exogenous ketones weren't necessary for our ancestors a thousand years ago, right? But they have a lot of utility now. Like, you know, these little like biohacking things like, um, you know, thing like wearing blue light blockers didn't matter when blue light didn't exist, right? When, when we didn't yeah. have cell phones and things like that. So I think the, the modern component of that is huge is like it's we have to find how to like if you have the, the luxury of, you know, buying 100 acres of land and living in the country off the grid um, in, and kind of removing yourself from society like that's great. Some people have a desire for that and, and also have the resources to be able to do it like that's cool, too. But there's also a lot of people that live in the heart of New York City um, and that's where that's and they love it and that's what they do. And that is a lot different than that. And and that that doesn't have to mean that you're unhealthy for living in Mm -hmm. those those areas. So I think, you know, health in a in a modern world means figuring out what it takes to combat the things that were um, to both combat the things that we're faced with today that we weren't before and to kind of. Uh, integrate the like one I guess two things integrate kind of what is still beneficial from the ancestral way of living um, and then take advantage of the new things that we have today that are so great like you know our ancestors didn't have the ability to isolate you know these compounds that are can be super great for how they couldn't isolate lion's mane and you know be able to take that and stuff but that doesn't mean that it's not an awesome thing that we are able to do today um, so I think mm-hmm. that's that's the idea is like is just adapting to this new world that we live in and finding a way to live with optimal health um, despite of that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It has been a really great pleasure as usual, Chris. Um, mm-hmm. I know I've been on your podcast. We, we do IG Live every uh, Friday morning, yes. 1030 a.m. PST. Uh, we talk a lot about metabolism and, and we we and we still managed to go over one hour on this podcast so (laughs) um so um yeah guys uh you know please join us on ig live and we do answer questions like live as well um and chris and i are also working on a book together soon um more details to come so um exciting to work with you and um it's it's been a pleasure yeah exactly thank you so much for having me on lat and uh yeah, really looking forward to, um, you know, doing our IG live tomorrow and uh, going to have to bring you on for round two, I think, on the Keto Answers podcast because I got uh, it's time for me to pick your brain again. So we'll have to do another episode <laughs> over there. I got I got a prep before that. Um, <laughs> and before you go, I want to um, really open the platform up for you um, to tell our listeners where can they find you and, and what would you, um, you know, uh, like to promote on your website and all that. Yeah, so you know, I'm on um, I'm on all social media platforms as the the ketologist. Uh, Instagram is kind of the primary one. I'm not on. T- I think I'm on TikTok, but I'm not doing anything on there. Uh, I think I'm just too old for that. Um, but I'm primarily on Instagram. Uh, that's where I put out a lot of my educational content. Um, I have a newsletter that is the Thinking Health newsletter uh, that can be found on Substack. So you can find that um, through the link in my bio. Uh, that's where I do a lot of. It's kind of a hybrid of. Um, nutrition with uh, philosophy. So there's kind of this mindset component to nutrition. Uh, I have the Keto Answers podcast you can find on uh, any platform that does podcasting. Um, and then we talked about um, BioCoach today. So BioCoach.io is our website as well as our social media handle. Um, we're also putting out a lot of really awesome content. We have a great content team over there that's putting out a ton of uh, great information. We have a blog on our website. Um, so, you know, even if you don't decide to uh, subscribe to the platform, we would love for you to take advantage of the educational resources that we're putting out there. 
Amazing. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for this episode. And I will speak to you soon. All right. Sounds good, Lat. Thanks a lot. If you have enjoyed the episode, please like, share, and subscribe. And if you have any comments or feedback, please leave it in the comment section. You can find us at HVMN on all social media platform and myself at Lat Manso on all social media platform as well. The HVMN podcast and myself are powered by Ketone IQ, the most effective way for you to elevate your blood ketone levels for optimal cognitive and physical performance as well as metabolic health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.